You're listening to More Than This, the podcast where Christian faith and reason explore reasons for Christian faith. Life's not a sequence program from the sky. Life's a story woven up, down, in and out, like stitches in If you enjoy our show, please consider supporting us for as little as $1 a month on Patreon. Check out our site at www.patreon.com forward slash more than this pod. Thank you. Fans of the theologian Aquinas rejoice because we are talking about natural law. You may have encountered natural law without knowing it. A lot of arguments about quote-unquote normal human motivations and relationships are based in natural law. We're calling it an unnatural conversation because we are far from experts in this area. Enjoy. Welcome back, friends and listeners. Why do I say friends and listeners? Like my listeners aren't my friends. Like there's two categories. We're all friends here. Yeah, exactly. Um, Listener friends as one Double adjective describing those of you who might be hearing the sound of my voice right now. Welcome to More Than This. Um, Full disclosure that in this episode, I told Dave it might be short. It was my idea to do this episode. And I'm probably, probably close to one of the least qualified people around to be talking about this topic. But I think it's interesting and I wanted to think about it. So here I am talking about it. So we'll see how it goes. We are going to be talking about natural law. Um, You will not get a real precise definition of what natural law is. Philosophers, cover your ears if you're listening to this. So Um, this doesn't have to do with uh, jurisprudence about state parks and whatnot. You're not talking about that? No, I'm not. I'm just talking about I'm what I'm ultimately interested in. We'll see if we get there. We'll see if I can land this ship, Dave. We'll see if we can bring it in is about how the general theory of natural law or the principles that sort of undergird it. Undergird, that's kind of an awkward word that it's right, but it's so, so wrong. Yeah, that support it of just the underlying theory behind natural law that that is sort of trickled into the way that we it's trickled down into modern Christian thought in ways that we probably don't realize. Or at least I said to Dave, I feel like I hear arguments from people justifying their um, opinions on certain things, and they're kind of using the Bible, but they're also mixing that with ideas that I've heard in natural law theory. So that's why we're going to talk about it today. We'll see how it goes. Might be a really short episode, Dave. I'm not going to be afraid to call it if I've got nothing else to say. Are you Fair feeling enough. like next 30 seconds, George? No, no, or? no, no. I, okay. Trust me, I have a lot more um, um, to say about it. I, I, full disclosure, again, um, I don't know if I've shared this story before, but when I was an undergrad, I would have never fallen asleep during a class. Like, I'm a real conscientious student. Um, and frankly, I, I found, like, everything really interesting. The only class I did not find interesting, and I really legit struggled to stay awake during was my intro to philosophy, philosophy 101, which was required. Now, it could have been partly because this class was at like 3.30 in the afternoon in a big lecture hall with kind of comfy seats and it was warm. I did not, um, but I really struggled. And I remembered on many occasions being like, I cannot believe we spent like an hour and 15 minutes discussing 
whether or not this desk exists. Like, I, it's just not my jam. I, that's in my other phrase. Just, just you not knew my it thing. existed because you had fallen asleep on it. Yeah, I was, I was struggling. The struggle was real. Um, so it, it, that's just to say, I am not a crack philosopher. But my understanding, with the help of Google and some really nice videos that I found on the internet um, about natural law, originated the original natural law theory. Um, Thomas Aquinas, who I had heard of, by the way, before. You've heard of him? Yes. Tomasian? Do they they don't say Aquinas, they say Tomasian. Thomist. Thomas. See, look, he always he's always got a one up me, ladies and gentlemen. Um Thomas. That's natural law. Yeah. <laughs> well, uh he was when did he live, Dave? Oh, Thomas Aquinas. Days of yore. Yeah. It's been a while. <laughs> a long time ago. I, I don't always know. get I always get Augustine and Aquinas mixed up in there. Augustine is City of God, right? Right. And predecessor of aquinas i think but well i'm gonna go with like the 1300s but that's probably wrong eh, we should have we should have gotten these facts i, I should have right. looked at that but any guy anyways guys it was a long time ago aquinas argued if it sounds like i'm reading from something it's because i am um, aquinas argued that god created the world according to natural laws predictable goal-driven systems whereby life is sustained and everything functions smoothly got it dave I got it. Okay. I'm riveted. Okay. And he also indicated that there were seven basic goods, um, which I think are the things that we're supposed to be pursuing or that we have a natural inclination towards that all human beings, um, that he said you would observe, uh, seek these things, which is life. So we like to be alive and we want to preserve our lives um, to reproduce to educate the people that we reproduce, our children, uh, to seek God to live in some sort of a society so we don't want to live alone, we seek the company of others, to avoid offense. That seems a little murky to me, but anyways, avoid offense. Um, I think, as I understand, we don't want people to be angry with us, like we, again, part of that social beingness, um, and to shun ignorance, that we are created to learn and to grow. Um, okay, so that actually, on face value, when you read it or you think about it, you think, okay, seems pretty basic like he might have been on to something um dave do you have anything to add about ways that you've heard natural law described it so yeah just uh as opposed to other sort of strains of moral philosophy or ethics or whatever um this one sort of sees things being good in and of themselves so like before even looking at consequences necessarily mm -hmm. uh this is teleological, like it has a telos, like uh, moving in accordance with these principles, which are sort of universal and written into our DNA and written into the world, um, will, regardless of consequence, it's the right thing to do because they are good in and of themselves. Even if they produce some consequences that we might say, ooh, that was undesirable. Ultimately, they will move us along to our ultimate good, I think is the way I understand it. I agree. I concur. <laughs> Thank you for concurring. You're very welcome. Most welcome, David. Um, David? Yeah, I don't know. I thought I would just change it up a little. Boy, yeah. I feel like I was getting in trouble. Yeah. Well, some people call you. Doesn't your wife call you David? Most people do, but you call me Dave. Why so do I, I call you Dave? I don't know. Because you have no respect for me. <laughs> Basically, that's probably it. I often add an O. That's Dave one of my... O. Dave I O. I'm used to that as well. Um, well, Dave O, David. Um, 
the reason that I picked natural, I guess there's a lot of, of strains of philosophical thought or moral reasoning that I could have picked. But the reason, what, what brought me to be interested in talking about this topic and how it relates to Christianity and how we live our lives, which going back to the reason for this podcast, I'll do the tagline, Christian faith and reason, explore the reasons for Christian faith. And I think I have heard in terms of reasoning for a lot of arguments about the way that we're supposed to live the good Christian life, I think I hear people maybe not even knowing that they're doing it or some knowing that they're doing it, alluding to kind of natural law arguments in, a, in the way that they interpret, interpret the Bible and Christian thought, if that makes sense. And I think in particular, the one that I hear most often is about um, sexuality. I don't know, like the idea that we um, like reproduction or the innate design. I think this comes into often uh, the way people talk about how men and women are designed, that it's part of the natural order. Like, you know, what are some of the arguments that you might hear that people might say, oh, the Bible clearly is against homosexuality, but it's against it because it's against like the natural order. Like, have you heard that argument? Yeah, it violates the natural order. So maybe it's even natural order, right? It, na- na- yeah, I'm not sure the difference there. No, no, but I think that's actually the phrasing that I, the mm-hmm. phrasing you use, the natural order. Like, I think sometimes people will say, well, it's obvious that men are supposed to marry women and not other men because that's part of the natural order and how we reproduce and the way that God designed us. And I, I hear this argument also come in a lot when people talk about gender norms um, for men and women that like, oh, men are naturally designed to be um, the instigators, the initiators, the ones who go out and do all these things. And women are naturally designed because of the fact that they give birth to children to kind of stay at the ho- like the home and hearth. Do you have you? Am I making yeah. this up, Dave? Have you no, heard this? I think it's a good a good point. To, I just remembered this to inject that part of something being in the canon of natural law is that it is the thing by which you judge whether something is rational or irrational. They are first principles. They don't need to be proven, right? They're embedded in nature. So because they have that status, they really can't be questioned. They're the things that other things are questioned by. Does that make yes, sense? it does. So, and, and once you get to that point, you can't question something that is what you question other things by. It's the way you know other things, right? Yes. And so it's a really hard argument to argue against. <laughs> like if someone's decided that this is a first order or first principle, that clearly, by the way that nature has designed us, this is the one and only way that things can be. And again, I'm just using sex. I, there's probably other examples. The sexuality is the one that's just sticking out to me. I'll say not can be, should be. Natural law accounts for the fact that you can deviate from it. But uh, this gets into basically a form of realism. As my pastor likes to say, not in a natural law sort of way exactly, but he says, if you run your fingers against the grain of the universe, you'll get a splinter at some point. It's like a nice analogy. It is, right? Yeah. Smart fella. Well, so, yeah. So I guess, you know, uh, I think, I guess I just have been thinking as I've thought about like tough issues. Can you think of another issue? Sorry, I'm like blanking here. Besides the issue of sexuality where natural law is something that we um, run up against, kind of the idea that people seek God or that there's like, I think that's, I'm going to say the name, he's French, Sartre. 
Sartre. Sartre. Jean-Paul Sartre. Yeah. Look at I you, know. known French, who says that people, I think he was an atheist, but said that people had a God-shaped hole. But the idea that we do seek um, God, that we kind of are um, wired to think that way or to seek that way. I mean, I think there's some some things in general within natural law theory. I don't think that they, he's that um, Aquinas captured all of them, but it kind of makes sense, right? Like you can see how you're like, yeah, people want to live in societies. Like we do have a natural drive to reproduce or i think even the look getting a little bit more meta the the fact that natural law is real like sort of like the idea of ends and means Mm -hmm. right like i feel like that one comes up like you reap what you sow right Mm -hmm. eventually something will come back to haunt you or have negative consequences that you did not author or intend right that's another sort of natural law thing that the universe works that way like you'll get yours in the end there'll be judgment or there'll be something that goes wrong for you if you violate these as well, like that, that one, I think it's come across in Christianity a lot and people often wait for it. You know, uh, we've talked about it before with, um, the way some Christians apply this to natural disasters, right? Yes. So I think that would fall me, but does that seem fair, Kate? That would fall under natural law of that consequences sure. or like, why, you know, why the I, hell not? I'm, I'm philosophy. I've had philosophy 101. I'm really qualified to opine yeah. on this topic. Yeah, I know. Yeah. So me too. But, uh, <laughs> Like I've told the story when my brother and sister-in-law lived in California in LA and there were mudslides nearby and someone in my family said it was God's judgment on the Hollywood lifestyle. It was like, here was this collective bearing out of this where people are, you know, hedonistic and living for themselves and, you know, not pursuing God. And, you know, so a natural disaster would come as God's instrument to show them judgment, even though it selectively only hit like 10 or 15 houses of people who, you know, could have all been staying there on a missionary retreat. You, you never right, know, right, right. you know, but either way it was disproportionate and sort of selective, but it was construed as God's judgment out of this idea of natural law. That there's this equilibrium that if you go against God's, I'm not saying it's all wrong. I'm just saying this seems like a very weird application of, of natural law, if that's what it is. Well, and I think that gets to the point, like kind of what my deeper question is about this. Cause you and I, obviously we've established, you know, Someone else could come on here and, and give a much better description of what natural law like really is and how we should be applying it. I'm actually more interested in sort of the, I told Dave this is a new phrase I invented, instead of pop psychology, pop theology, maybe someone else has already used that yeah. phrase, but if they hadn't, haven't, I'm trademarking it here, pop theology. I think from what we've talked about, Kate, if I can uh, divine the mind of Kate, which I don't know if I can do, it's, it's very uh, it's tre- treacherous waters. Uh, I think when I've heard you talk about this, that you've been interested in how people sort of use this as in pop theology to sort of uh, undergird, we'll use that word again, to sort of underwrite and undergird and validate the status quo. Yes. So like if there is a certain power imbalance or differential, people will sort of just sort of throw up their hands and be like, well, that's just the way reality is or the way God intended things to be or the natural order of things or whatever. And especially when it comes down to issues of injustice or inequity, um, you know, and some of that has to do with the culture we live in, in terms of where inequities lie and what's, what goods are desired. Mm-hmm. You know, there might be a culture where, or a time where women didn't desire to be in the workplace as much, and it probably wasn't as hot button of an issue or, or as economically necessary for women to work, say, mm-hmm. you know, or hold positions of power or office. But that's not the time we live in now. And some of the defense of that is probably the idea from some Christian camps that this is God's intended order. 
right? Like this is God's like God's inherent design. It's sort of um, a problem, like a chicken and egg problem, right? Of like, oh, it has to deal with chicks for sure. <laughs> um, all your puns just making me lose lose my train of thought. Um, they well, do have you, an effect on the ladies, don't they? <laughs> they do, Dave. I don't know how Kara. How does Kara get any work done ever? Uh, she just rolls her eyes back into her head and puts on her <laughs> headphones. Smart lady, Kara. Smart lady. Um, so I, I again, it comes. I'm thinking a little bit about like a chicken versus egg problem, where which came fr- like we we have the Bible, which we hold as like this standard of of truth, but we're doing interp. We've established like everybody knows like we're always reading the Bible through a cultural lens and and doing interpretation. Anyone who says I saw like a quote, I was reading an article, I think it was Pete Enns, where he was like, "We literally don't read the Bible literally." <laughs> Basically just saying it's not possible. People say, oh, I, I just read what's there. Plain meaning of the text. Well, it's kind of, you know, you're bringing some presuppositions into it. But we try to say, here's the Bible, which is guiding our Christian thought and life. But then we have these other ways of thinking or um, theories that kind of color or influence how we're looking at the Bible. And so if you come in with a natural law way of looking and saying, okay, I'm going to look at the natural design of the world and how things work and how the system works. And I believe that God is good and he created, put good systems in place and he's the author and creator of life. Um, So then what I'm reading in the Bible has to go along with the, the system that I'm observing. But I think that we pick and choose which parts of the system we would be applying that we say is like natural or self-evident. I think I've made the argument to you before. How do you do like, why did we decide like the natural world would tell me that there's something called like survival of the fittest that like the strong usually win over the weak or that there's an evolutionary system, right? Where we evolve to more complex beings or like there's some other sort of quote unquote observable laws of nature or things that you would observe that we don't take as evidence of how, right? Like we don't take those as evidence of how we're supposed to act. We're not supposed to have the strong, that's not like our goal, right? For the strong to rule over the weak or to eliminate the weakest members of society. The Bible actually calls us to something pretty counter the natural system. So I guess it just, go ahead. Yeah. I was going to say that this, natural law as I understand it, which is uh, maybe more or less than you, but if it is, it's by one-tenth of a degree. Uh, I don't think it precludes normative things, though, in terms of things that we think should be ideal. Um, It's not like, sometimes we talk about natural laws if it just has, it acts on its own force, and we, you can go against it, right? So, Natural law has, has, I think in my mind, has more to do with universals that you're claiming it kind of shows up everywhere across societies, across cultures, across history. The same themes come up and, and are there and they can be subverted and you can have other things that are normative or, or considered, you know, to be ideals. But they're always sort of aberrations, right? And that one's interesting because that was supposed to be descriptive, right? But we mess with that all the time. You even think about flowers and dogs and things that w- would never survive on their own, right? Think about bulldogs. They should have died hundreds of years ago. As um, the former owner of a English bulldog whose name was Queen Bubba Lou, my dad would just look at Queen Bubba Lou. She was a girl, um, but we called her Bubba. Um, and he was like, 
how did this, how is she still living? Like breathing is just not easy for her. Like how is that even possible? She can barely breathe. Right. Sitting down. Oh, our, our friends have a, an English bulldog that has so many ailments. It's only modern science that has kept it alive to like age six. And I regularly look at the dog and I say, that dog is nothing but a walking recessive gene. <laughs> like everything is sort of like, yeah, loaded bad on the, on the, the gene valences. Like it's not, it's not good. Uh, and they keep the dog alive artificially. Like the dog would, you know, our, I think about that with our dogs. We've domesticated our dogs. They can breathe on their own just fine, but like they would die within minutes being outside of the house, like just on their own. They're, you know, so we keep all kinds of flowers and things alive that should have died out. So, uh, yeah, the, that's true as it goes, but you know, in terms of ethics and what we should do, what's normative, we, yeah, we, we, especially as Christians say we should do different things and there's universal impulses toward those things to not kill the, the weakest. We right. actually tend to protect more than we do kill. Well, then how about this? I'm trying a couple. I'm, I'm throwing things out there to yeah, see what yeah. sticks, Dave. Yeah. Um, I think if I'm honest and I don't want it to be like, oh, I always come back and I want to talk about like gender norms or sexuality. But maybe that is the area where I find this to be the most to rub me the most the wrong way. Um, because it's like, for example, I, or, 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 and I think I'm probably not the first person to raise these arguments. If I paid more attention, people in my philosophy class probably raised these arguments and I was drowsing. Um, so some of you will be like, this is, people have been having this argument for like hundreds of years. You're just new to it. But for example, if, if, if the idea is, for example, let's take sex, that sex is for reproduction and that's like a natural human desire. Well, do people stop having sex? If like, if you're infertile or you can't have kids, does that mean that like sex then loses its purpose or there's no point to be married or, um, you know, people use birth. I mean, again, again, I do know that the Catholic argument about this would be, well, that's why you don't ever actually like remove, um, uh, like you don't use birth control or contraception because then that's taking something away from like the reproductive act. Well, I think that that's, that's a bit of not a straw man, but it's a bit of, I would, put it differently and say procreative capacity because right some people are infertile even if it is a man and a woman and could technically in another instance create a child create sex out of a union there's at least the capacity something's gone wrong it's not the normal state of things for same gender couples to be able to produce a child like that's not i mean so i think that's probably it's not it doesn't get us out of the woods but it's not just in my mind that sex is only about procreative, but procreative capacity that men and women have. That's probably what I, I would sort of say is a stipulation. I'm not saying that's my line exactly, but right, right, or that because would- there's all kinds of things. I mean, obviously, every woman gets to a point where she can't bear children anymore, and it, you don't really read anything into the law of nature that you should stop having sex at that point. True. I'm thinking, Dave, processing yeah. over here. Yeah. I mean, I'm also thinking then about, and maybe this is another way that, it, that I, how I've heard natural law, like kind of the ideas of natural law theory applied in this, I don't want to call it pop theology, that's derogatory, but I'll just say it anyways. I'm going to be derogatory. It's, it's, if it's popular and it's theology. No. Oh, that's, there you go. Yeah. Um, but the idea of like women, this 
ah, this has bugged me. It just is very bothersome to me. The whole idea of like um, men and women and the innate gender differences, like the biological. Yeah. I can't tell you, I, I have been um, very much in favor of like, again, I think I might have said this before, like, but you know, I went to college and I had someone be like, why are you, a guy was like, why are you going to college? I don't understand why parents pay all this money to send, the guy who was copying my homework at the time, like, why do parents pay all this money to send their kids to college? If women were just following the role that God set out for them, they would just stay home and have babies. Why would you waste all this money on education? So let's just say, color it with that. That's what I, I was exposed to that kind of um, stuff. Um, but I think that there was also this idea, there's like these idea of assigning like certain personality traits or types of what you should be interested in and what you should want to do based on your genitalia that didn't make that much sense to me. And like the idea, I've even heard people go so far. So that that came to like women and what they should do, what they should pursue. Um, like, should they pursue work outside of the home? Is there place in the home um, to be nurturers and caring, not to be like out there in the wider world? And I think within the world in particular of evangelicalism, I've heard some pretty like, I think it's pretty noxious theology about um, just even, um, again, to just talk about genitalia more. Let's go ahead and do that. The the idea that like clearly even the sex act it act ex itself, women are the receivers and men are the initiators, and kind of saying, look, this is just clear. Like we're just look at how the sex act works. Clearly, men are supposed to be the initiators and women are supposed to be the receivers. And I'm like, that's not actually obvious to me at all. There's like a di right, like it's because you're seeing it that way. So I don't know, Dave. Now that I've said genitalia like five times, what do you want to say? Not genitalia. <laughs> but you did. I know. I did that on purpose. Oh, oh my goodness. Uh, but you see what I'm saying? Like, I feel like that idea of, like, function must follow form. I know that people use the phrase the other way, that form follows function, but. Yeah, I'm having weird thoughts. So I was just thinking, you know, to make this, let me explain myself while I get myself in trouble. To make this just a justice and equity issue, you know, the, the, I'm with you on the idea that uh, I think that there is something intended to be somewhat different in men and women. And even in our, so even just, this is an obscure argument or one that's hard to, for me to articulate well, even the fact that our bodies are different in space, like your body is different in mine, even the way it hits the eye and hits the senses and pheromones and all of that stuff, we're going to react differently based on those things. So like we are different, like in some ways, even in compositional levels. In terms of qualities, like you're saying, where some things were ascribed to women and roles, that I don't really think, that doesn't fit those data, right? You can say men and women are different, and I think that the sort of standard movement now to sort of compress and say men and women are the same, and having a role or position open to a woman or a man, you know, equally is good in one thing, but I find it dangerous to say in violation of the natural law th thought that, you know, people saying men and women are, are can do everything and it, you can conflate that with men and women being the same, which is weird because it's also it's undoing because if men and women are exactly the same, you wouldn't need one sex over the other because they're exactly the same. So you could say, well, if it's exactly the same, why do we need to hire a woman or why do we need to hire a man, right? If you take that to that 
that end. I'm not willing to go all the way there. Mm -hmm. But the idea that, you know, cultures have built around and defined gender characteristics in ways that suit groups and ways that, you know, suited particular economic arrangements that have held over too long. I'll buy that all day. But the idea that, or natural law might have something to say, or, you know, is this that I think no matter what society you put it, people in around the world, men and women will come up with some trait level differences somewhere in a matter of degree, not whether yeah. some people have them or where some people don't. Um, so I think it can go too far and end up with that conflation where like, it's really just a different body, but everything else is exactly the same. I think bodies matter. I mean, even at that, at that basic level. So it doesn't negate anything you said. It just sort of, for me, put me in that direction of thinking. I also see it as catastrophic when we stop looking in ways of understanding of femininity and masculinity. Like when we stop that search, but also when we just take the sort of stock boilerplate that men are like this and women are like this. Cause it creates false identity, gender identity confusion. I think when you violate that, I'm, I'm a very feminine man in a lot of ways, like in terms of my temperament was typically ascribed to females, but it hasn't created gender confusion in me, but it could have. Well, I, let me try to give another example. And I think this is in line with what you're saying. I am also not saying that there are not biological differences. No, I didn't but, take it yeah, away. Mm -mm. Between men and women. But what bothers me I think this is confirming your point is when people ascribe. Yes, like clearly I'm going to there's going to be certain things that happen, like I'm the one who can bear children. And that's like a biological reality. But let me give an example for what how I think people take that too far and are kind of like essentializing uh, gender in a way that I think is kind of harmful and just not productive. Um, and doesn't allow people to be full human beings in the image of, made in the image of God or to uh, uh, flourish. I had a friend's mom who said something. I don't know. We were talking about something when I was in college about gender roles. And this friend's mom said, well, when you're pregnant, you're going to feel really different because you're just going to be so thankful that you have your husband to protect you and, and to care for you when you're in that state. And I was like, well, OK, fine. But like if my husband was in the hospital and was ill, I would protect him, too. Like if my husband had like violent dysentery and we were like escaping from a war, like. I'd put him in a wheel, wheelbarrow. I don't know what movie I'm getting that from. I'd put him in a wheelbarrow and push him. Like, it, it was just sort of this idea that, like, you are fragile and need to be protected by because of your sex and how and you are going to need a physical protector. And I thought, well, it's true. There's ways that my husband can physically protect me that maybe I couldn't protect him. But you want to talk about, like, if somebody messes with my husband, he's like, calm down. I mean, if if I hear that some, there's like an injustice at work or if there's... um. If someone were to say something to him that I felt was rude or I mean, there's different oh, ways man. that that protection, yeah. right? You wouldn't got a little tiger wife, mom in me, whatever. But but I guess my point was she was defining protection as an as like a, a, a quality or like, I don't know, a, a, only in this really specific physical sense in this one moment in time. And I was like protecting. Are you saying that I shouldn't protect my I protect my spouse all the my husband all the time? just in different ways. Does that make sense? Yeah, it it does. And I, I can just concur with that, that, you know, Kara gets so protective and angry on my behalf to the point where I almost have to be careful how I pitch something. Cause she'll be like, Oh, they're dead to me. Yeah. I mean, like we joke about it all the time <laughs> and like, I'm like, Whoa, easy tiger. You know, I was just blowing off a little steam, but she definitely has that impulse. And 
protection does run across sexes, you know. Or nurturing care. Oh, God God forbid that men are not nurturing. Well, exactly. Like I see the way that my husband cares um, for our kids and things like that. And like he's very, you know, nurturing and and physically affectionate with them. That's not like my domain only. And, And anyways, I think that's what it is. Maybe, again, I'll just use the word again. It's like the... What I don't like about natural law is it's like, or not natural law, is like the pop theology application of the principles of natural law that I feel like I've seen is sort of like people are like, clearly, this is the way that it's meant to be. Therefore, we're going to fit everything that we learn. We're not going to try to grow or be more nuanced or think about what the Bible is telling us, or is it pushing both of uh, people to grow? Or is is there nuance here? It's like makes things so black and white. And I just think that that's a really. It's like giving yourself an overarching narrative of black and whiteness to put on the Bible so you can read it in a really black and white way. And that, I think, is what bugs me. Yeah, it often gets pressed down into specific social arrangements or things. I remember people like to use natural law in their favor when they can. I was uh, kind of sort of casually dating a girl, and we were hanging out with her sister-in-law. and the girl I was casually dating, her brother was not uh, that financially successful as of yet. I mean, he was, he worked hard and, you know, but he just didn't earn a ton of money. They needed her, you know, his, the sister-in-law to work as well. And she looked at me and the girl I was casually dating and said, uh, you know, I don't want to work outside the home. And any woman who says that they do is lying. Like they ultimately Every, every woman would rather stay home. It's just, you know, they've been sort of told that this is what they need to do to be liberated, but I'll just tell the truth. And I was like, I was like, oh man, I am out of here. Like, I, this was like, <laughs> I'm like, I don't think it's like some vast conspiracy that, you know, every woman doesn't, I mean, okay, maybe you don't, you're a woman, that's fine. You may tie that to your, your femininity, but I'm like, that is reaching too far for me. I, I think that like any sort of the differences or things that could be written down to, net, to natural law, presuming that that exists, you can't get that specific with it. Like, you know, like the level of protection or not, like you're in your example or wanting to work or not. I know tons of dudes who don't want to work, you know, like for one, I know tons of women who are, are really great at work and they would go absolutely insane if they stayed home, you know, I mean, in another social, you know, time in history, another culture, maybe they would have had to, people may do, but we can see that families can thrive, you know, in a lot of ways, uh, in different arrangements, you know, it doesn't violate natural law. It just means that we often take it and try to get it to mean certain things that, that benefit us or, uh, also to isolate or alienate or invalidate someone we don't agree with, right? Well, I guess that gets to the maybe one of the deeper questions that I was hoping we would answer, and I think we started to, is should we be using natural law, right? Like, and, and maybe it's not even just like the theory of natural law as inarticulately and imperfectly as I am understanding and applying it, and I'm sure as um, others would do it better, but is it, I just think it's an important thing to be aware that there are deeper structures or uh, either whether they're these philosophical concepts or cultural concepts, I think they kind of blend together in this case, of what's natural and right and just 
that color or that are influencing how we're reading, um, how we think about Christianity and like the trajectory of Christian thought. As evangelicals, we tend to say, oh, no, 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 it's really simple. It's clear. It's in there in the, I'm just reading the Bible. Like, clearly it says this or that. And you're like, well, actually, if you didn't have, and we can't completely divorce ourselves from our cultural reality and from the history of thought that that's, you know, um, intellectual thought that's come before us, but I think it's a really valuable exercise sometimes to step back and say, okay, where is this coming from? Why am I, and I'm not saying that philosophy isn't helpful in understanding things, No, but, but it's just helpful yeah. to know that you're, because I think sometimes you don't even realize that you're doing it or using that. No, good theology and good philosophy can be very helpful. But I think what what I hear you saying possibly, or at least my spin on it, is that um, natural law can become the uh, needle that we inject bad theology, like we weaponize parts of the scripture. Mm -hmm. And this is just sort of the framework that we fit that into and say, no, this makes this dogmatic and binding because natural law is real we're going to slide this in the category of natural law and that weaponizes it and makes it you can't argue it right it just it has the force of nature behind it it has that like oomph that existential like whoomp there it is you know it's like yeah there it is you knew i was about it yeah i knew it (laughs) i couldn't i just dangled the bait out there for you uh that's i think that's when it becomes problematic and it also excuse the idea that natural law might exist or maybe some universals and some utility when people sort of selectively interpret scripture and say this is natural law so you know it's like i have the weight of god on my side basically it's just another way of saying but making it really impersonal and masking the fact that it's human origin that you're doing it yeah you know natural law is like a look to, looking to discover patterns and and things that come up and seemingly are sort of made visible maybe in the light of scripture, but also seem pretty universal and empirical. You can kind of find them like everywhere you look. I think you can find some things, but I think they're more modest and more just virtue-based sort of areas like some of Aquinas's like make sense to me, but it wouldn't be like, oh, women should work or not work or men should not be nurturing or, you know I mean? Like, I don't think universal law is that, or natural law is that particular, you Mm -hmm. know, it's rather more general. Yeah. Dave, you've done a really good job of interpreting me. I mean, we took up almost the whole episode with me kind of throwing stuff out there and you're like, what I think I hear you saying, Kate, I was very appreciative. Thank you. Oh, good. I I was trying not to mansplain, but also like making sure we were tracking. Yeah. No, no, no. I mean, it was very helpful because again, I had... Uh, if you watch the promo to this episode, you know, I was hoping that by talking, I could figure things out. I was one of those kids in class who, before I had the answer, would raise my hand and be like working it out. <laughs> um, external processor over here. Yeah, I think I think one of the problems with natural law done poorly, this is kind of a shambolic way of, of looking at it and how it often gets used, like the way people talk about it and the way people use it. Um, it also then makes you think, oh, this is you can debunk this. So it also lends credence to things like, uh, you know, consequentialism or looking at things at outcomes like utilitarianism and things like that, where it's like, what really matters is the thing that will provide the most pleasure or the most quote unquote good in a culturally derived sense. 
for the most amount of people. Mm-hmm. And that's not a Christian worldview either. Like, it, Christ, the gospel and Christianity, I think, cuts across these things. Again, I don't know what a Christian worldview is, but you can't say it's all just natural law. These inflexible binding things that just are good in and of themselves. But you can't say it's not that either. I think that is a play. And I think you do have to look at consequences as well. Um, but in terms of pleasure and consumerism, we know that our culture is kind of obsessed with those things. And it's awfully convenient that we would underwrite, you know, our culture with that too. Like, no, utilitarianism is good. You know, whatever provides the most amount of pleasure. Because I think we can all attest that we may have sought pleasure and ended up in pain. Uh, (laughs) Guilty as charged. Yeah. Like that's most of the way we eat, uh, spend money, uh, tweet, you know, things like that where we're like, okay, this feels good in the moment. This provides me a lot of pleasure. But then it's like, ooh, actually I derive greater pleasure from self-sacrifice and delayed gratification. And those things tend to be fairly universal as well. Now, if you can never experience pleasure and say, and just say, hey, pleasure is terrible, that's different. And that doesn't really have to do with natural law, but we often can get stuck there too. So just wanted to throw that in as a freebie. <laughs> well, believe it or not, we, we, we got a full episode in, Dave. We talked for the regular amount of time. God help me. Don't ask me for my stretches in this area. I'm not either. Because, it was a stretch to do this episode. Yeah, I know. Well, folks, thanks for hanging, hanging in there with us. I, I learned some things. Um, maybe you do too. And we, you know, we'll, we'll keep thinking about it, Dave. When I can't fall asleep at night, I'm going to ponder these mysteries. That's my stretch. I'm just glad that even though we had a good conversation, it can still put you to sleep, Kate. (laughs) I am feeling a little sleepy, Dave. All right. Maybe, maybe it's time for Starbucks. (laughs) Sounds good. Okay.